Welcome to the Roots Podcast, brought to you from the Training and Equipping Ministry of Chanctonbury, exploring revival, church, leadership and culture. Discover more about our community at chanctonbury.org.uk. Um, yeah, I just had a question. Um, you kind of shared from like um, an atheist perspective, but I just wondered um, in terms of like the new age like side of things is a bit different their mindset isn't necessarily that there isn't a god like um but it is that there there, there is something out there so i just wondered if you would touch on kind of the um how you like if you've ever had conversations with people where their perspective is there is something out there but they don't necessarily and just from that perspective rather than the argument of an atheist that there isn't i just wondered if there would be a difference in the way that you would mm-hmm. yeah as a perceptive question, uh, you're quite right. In the world today, there's a small amount of very angry and vocal atheists. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and there are quite a few more uh, New Age, spiritualist type people who have a different mindset. Uh, I suppose what I'd say is usually, um, I'd probably say they don't believe so differently to the atheists as they think, number one. Because ultimately, it speaks to the point we talked about before, which is that um, if you believe in a kind of fuzzy spiritual reality that doesn't ask anything of you, it allows you to kind of focus in on yourself. And so life becomes all about you and all about, not about God and your neighbor. And so I guess usually, it depends. When's the last time I spoke? So similar to speaking to a Hindu or a Buddhist, I don't know if you've ever interacted with people like that, who have a much more, yes, you can believe that if you want. But again, I think... What I usually say is, look, I think everyone thinks it's true for you, true for me, until they stand in front of a bus that's coming at them. And it comes a point where there's an actual reality in the world, and you've got to step out of the way or not, you see? And so people, when they say, well, you know, but yeah, I believe in something, and you've got to say, well, what is it? What is it, this something that you're talking about? And they might say, well, which is usually the answer I get from people. So I think I'd probably just press in a little bit and just say, okay, well, tell me about this something. What do you think? And they'll say, well, the universe. I asked the universe. The universe will do it. Well, why would the universe do that, I might say. What makes you think the universe has a personality? What makes you think the universe has an intention for you specifically? What, are you, what is this universe you're talking of? It sounds suspiciously not like an inanimate, impersonal being. It sounds suspiciously like you think this is some kind of god. So I'd say probably the way to do it is to kind of press in to the question with the assumption behind their statement. They might be saying, oh, well, I don't really think all this. But then if you press them, what do you actually believe? What do you actually think is going on? You'll probably find that they actually do have quite firm beliefs about whether there's a God or not and what the character of that God is. You see, and that's the kind of way in. Is that helpful? All right, cool. Thanks, so really Thanks, James. Um, yeah, I was, to- I was talking to a friend about using one of these arguments about like what's the possibility of these things actually ever happening without God yeah and he said look um, and and his argument was well we don't know how much given enough time anything can happen so that sort of argument what's your answer to that I'd probably say can anything happen with enough time I'm not sure that's true Um, just to put him off his (laughs) put put him off the scent um, I think I'd say, yeah, um, argue, yeah, prove it to me. What do you mean anything can happen? Because actually, there's a, and this is a point I was making about the difference between 
um, evidence which is gathered by a scientific inquiry and kind of metaphysical philosophical arguments. So you can do all the science you want, but the way you do science is through the laws of logic, through argumentation and deductive reasoning. That's how you actually find things out. And so when I say, look, well, the universe had to exist and it had to begin, it, that's, that's just, that's not a scientific argument, actually. That's not about what cosmologists out there are discovering. It's a question that people have been thinking about for thousands of years, and the shape of that argument hasn't changed in that time because it's, a, it's just a foundational aspect of how we reason. You see what I mean? And so I'd say probably, look, science won't answer it. But you'll always find some other little thing to theorize about, you see. But you've got to take a step back and ask yourself, well, hang on. Ultimately, if you can ask yourself, where did that come from? You're back to the philosophical question. Does that make sense? So I probably just said, look, it is philosophical, and it is to do with this first cause thing, and it's not necessarily about science. Science supports the philosophical conclusions. So if I can point to the Big Bang and say, well, look, the scientific evidence suggests that I'm right, you see. But the premise itself is based on a philosophical argument which says, actually, no, you can't have an infinite regress. You can't have these things. It's not actually possible. So for the infinite regress, there are examples uh, like uh, you get absurdities with infinities. So for instance, there's a, there's a thought experiment called Herbert's Hotel, where imagine a hotel with an infinite amount of rooms, and then you get an infinite amount of people going, we want to check in. You go, no problem. Everyone in a hotel, just, just take a, take, exit a room and just go in another room along and leave a gap in between. <laughs> You'll have an infinite amount of gaps, and then you can have an infinite amount of people inside, and then you have the same amount of people as before, which is infinite, you see? So you can't actually add infinity to infinity. So there's certain things which are just can't be in the actual world. You see what I mean? So these, these philosophical arguments aren't sort of, they sound a bit high-voluted and silly, but actually they're there to help you get straight in your head what's actually possible in the world. What can I actually trust? How do I evaluate evidence in the first place, you see? So I'll probably give them a little lecture on the nature of philosophical arguments and, and just try and say, well, look, you, you, what he's doing there, you see, he's putting faith in science to give him the answers, probably because he doesn't want to put his faith in God. And like I said earlier, you will get to a point, perhaps. You get to a saturation point. You know the arguments. And the question is no longer about is it reasonable to believe in God. That's actually not difficult to argue. The question is do you trust Jesus and do you trust God? Uh, and that's a very different question, and I suspect that might be where your friend is. I think one of the really interesting things over the last few years has been the attack on objective truth. Um, so we've seen it in fake news and all of that. And and where what I'm sort of hearing back from people who don't know God is is the answer. Well, how do we know anything is real anyway? How do we even know? You know, this is. This I'm existing. How do I even know that you exist? And I don't know if you've heard that. And how would you how would you respond to that sort of nothingness? Like, is this even real? Type thing. Yeah, radical skepticism. You're right. I have heard of this. Um, and I guess okay. So basically, you do get people that think like this. I tend to say, well, first of all, no one lives like that. Now, you may be saying this to me now for the argument's sake, but do you actually believe that? Do you doubt when you're hungry? Do you doubt when you need to sleep? Do you doubt when you've stubbed your toe? <laughs> Is that really the case? Do you really, really believe that you can't know whether you exist? Um, I don't think people really think that. I think people might 
tell you they think that because they want to argue with you, or they tell you they think that because they want to you know, sustain a way of looking at the world that they want to, they want to live. That's how they want to live. So if they believe this, it enables them to live in that way while feeling consistent and honest. So I think I just, just poke them a little bit and say, well, that's not how the world is, and you know it. You know full well it isn't, you know? And they know it. So I think just, just, just hit them in the face with the real world <laughs> and just say, look, no, that's not true, is it? And I think, again, it's a properly basic belief. Um, that's an Alvin Plantinga term. He's a Christian philosopher. He says, in, in, in the absence of an overriding reason to doubt the fact that I'm stood here with a microphone speaking to you, I'm perfectly justified in holding that position. I don't have to justify the fact that I'm here to anybody. You see, the world exists, and there's no good reason to doubt it. And all of scientific endeavor, the medicine they took to treat their headache, the toothpaste they used to brush their teeth, all of that is based on the assumption that the world exists and that reasoned inquiry into the world is a way of finding out truths about the world. And so you can't have a world in which, oh, I don't know whether anything's true, and then rely on the things that were created to make your life happen that are predicated on those premises. See what I mean? So it's, um, that's a bit convoluted. I mean, you may not want to say that. So good, Will. Um, I had a, um, a text today the other day from a cousin um, my uncle died and it was the anniversary and my family all know I'm believers I'm a believer um, but she sent this text saying you know a lot of family have gone now hopefully this is the thing but you know she's got hope hopefully to a better place waiting for us when our number is up to and it's just for me that kind of challenge about, I don't think they think, I don't think they think about God. I don't, I think there's that thing that hopefully it's going to be all right and we're going to go to a lovely place and how, um, she doesn't, you know, she lives miles away, but how you kind of, not challenge, but, you know, you've given me lots of food for thought today to go forward with that really. But, you know, when people just have a hope that everything's going to turn out and they're not giving it any thought. They're not thinking about God. They accept that I have a relationship with God and I love God and that's great. And I've had somebody else say to me, well, that's all right for you. You know, you've got that. That's all right for you. And it's like, you know, how you you break through that really. I don't know that you can. Anyway, any ideas? Yeah. Again, a perceptive question and an example of how this rapidly turns to the personal and the theological. It strikes me that your, your family member, um, it may well be that your presence in their life has already started to shift their <laughs> thinking a little bit because they're saying things like, well, hopefully it'll be okay. So I guess what you want to do is probably not hit them over the face with a strong philosophical argument. But you could, you could probably say, hey, do you know what? You're right to be hopeful. There is a reason for hope. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, I have these beliefs, but I don't have them just because I've had nice experiences. I have good reasons to believe them. Would you like to hear some? And just share in that way, so that you're, you're speaking to their needs would be the way in. Does that make sense? So you're, 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 they want to have hope. You want to give them a reason to believe in that hope and how to, how to get hold of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah and, and just another thought is, uh, you could see a text like that as permission to initiate a conversation around hey I noticed you said hopefully about another place can you tell me a bit more or something 
When, um, when I was young, a friend of mine got killed in a motorbike accident and, uh, in, from my school. And um, uh, in, uh, I was in the dormitory with all, all my kind of year group. There were about 13 of us. And I was the only Christian. They were all quite anti. And, uh, but one of them said, uh, what do you think? Like, heaven or hell? And it opened up this conversation. And weirdly... They're facing the dark realities of death. And suddenly, like you said, a big bus coming along. Suddenly, they're like talking as if this is all real. What, and what is that? Surely there's something innate in us that just knows. We actually really know. Because these guys who just don't believe were talking about heaven and hell as if it was a total reality. And I'm like... This is weird. I'm in a conversation with, uh, you know, all these non-believers, and yet they're talking about things I believe in, and that they give me jip for, <laughs> in as though it's reality because death has entered their framework. So I think it's just interesting, you know, around death, people start talking about these things. Any more questions? Uh, I'll come back to you, Dylan, after the. Not sure how to put this exactly as a question, but um, have you ever uh, wondered if it's a level playing field? I mean, so so just to flesh it out a bit. So I have some educated friends, neurologists, interested in writing books on consciousness, blah blah blah. Um, and in a discussion group, and I'm often finding that well, I'm kind of exiting it because I've got worn out with it. But I feel I get backed into a corner often as, oh, John, you won't agree with anything we've just said, will you? And, you know, a few weeks of that is okay, because I think, well, I've got Jesus with me, you know, I'm here for a reason. But it's become sort of, it feels like there's a pressure and a weight coming that goes over and above the logical content of the discussion that we're trying to have. You know, and I'm aware the Bible talks a little bit about, you know, strongholds and philosophical ideas against God and what so where does prayer and you know without being hyper where does a spiritual warfare come into the idea of having a discussion because we're we're you know we're talking about truth and ideas and all of that so if they're prepared to argue they obviously believe there is such a thing as objective truth otherwise you're wasting your breath but there's a resistance which goes over and above the content of what we're talking about. Sorry, that was, I said I didn't know how to formulate it as a question. No, I, I think that's good. Um, okay, there's a couple of things in what you've asked which are really interesting. So I think um, thing number one. Oh, sorry, thing number one is, um, first, the Christian faith is quite different. It actually is unique. It asks of you something very different to a lot of other faiths, you see. So if you're, if you're a Hindu, we were talking about this earlier, you know, you want to achieve nirvana. Or if you're a Buddhist, you want to achieve enlightenment. You see, it's kind of about you. And, you know, in polite society, you can be a Buddhist, and people go, oh, how fascinating, you know, what meditative practices have you been into lately, and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. The Christian faith is very different. It forces a choice on people. So the Buddha says, well, achieve enlightenment if you want, but, you know, pff, all life is suffering, so hey, you know, whatever. Whereas the Christian says, no, there's a 
choice to make. The world is different now because of what Jesus did, and you have to choose, you see. And that's just implicit in the gospel. And so I think anyone who understands that will automatically, if they know there's a real Christian in the room, they just, just they can't help themselves, right? And they will, they will give you, without maybe even intending to, they'll give you a hard time because they're having, they're having this sort of in the back of their mind. I'm not having this from you. I'm not having you tell me that I have to choose how to live my life in accordance with some first century Jew. <laughs> that's what they're thinking. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, and this is something that I've personally had to be, you know, go on a journey on, is the fact that there are spiritual beings out there. There's other stuff going on, uh, and that prayer is important in that, for sure. Uh, I don't pretend to know much about it. I don't think any of us do, but it is there, and it's a live issue. And I tend to pray if I know I'm going into a situation anyway. Just because I think the way these kind of spiritual battles happen is, you know, I don't know, I'm sure there's lots of opinion, but one way I'm sure they happen is that they tempt you back into your selfish self. They tempt you, hey, wasn't it fun being the know-it-all? Wasn't it, why don't you just, yeah? And they tempt you to become the lesser self that you were before. So I think that's the thing I usually pray for, is if I'm ever going to interact, I'm very specific, and I ask the Lord to help me just attain his wisdom. Because we actually take our wisdom from other sources all the time. We don't get our wisdom from nothing, do we? We take our parents' wisdom, we take our teachers' wisdom, we take our university lecturers' wisdom, and we seem to think that's ours for some reason. Why is that? Is it ours? Not sure it is, is it? So what's wrong with taking God's wisdom? It's actually an elevation of who we are to take God's wisdom. It's not a degradation, you see. And so you pray for God's wisdom to work with you because the story of the Bible is that God wants to work with us, through us, despite who we are and what we've done. You see, and so that on the spiritual side, I'd say is how I would tackle it. I don't tend to stress it, I, I, um, but I take it seriously. And the way I think to do it is to pray to God to keep me being a true human, which is a human whose wisdom is taken from God's word and enacted in the world. And that helps you to then become who you really ought to be and who you really wanted to be all along. You just didn't know it. You see, that's that's the deal. So I think there's two things. Take the spiritual reality seriously, but focus the prayer to allow the spirit to work, but then be mindful of the kind of the force of the gospel. It's, it's a much more forceful message than just about any other philosophical belief because of what it demands of people, in my view. Not in terms of ritual. Lots of religions demand lots of ritual practices. Fine. But actually in terms of how you see the world, who you are, what's important, you see? So you can have a view of the world that says, I'm very, very important, and you can join a lot of religions, including probably some Christian <laughs> you know, churches out there, and not be changed in that. So you're doing all the Christian stuff, and yet you are still the same self-centered person, you see? Whereas the gospel really is trying to tell you to become your true self. You let go of that false you, let it die, and you become the real you through Christ, resurrected, yeah? So that's, that's the idea. So how's that? <laughs> I was just going to ask the classic one about how do you align like the 13.7 billion years and like all evolution and all of these 4.5, however long the earth was in billion years, um, alongside like the scriptural belief of 6,000 years and like, and then things like dinosaurs and how all that falls into, do, like do you take it as a representation story, as literal, I mean, I'm meaning the Genesis story? And then, so when people ask that sort of question. 
I don't know. <laughs> Uh, there's a diversity of opinion. So on the one hand, you've got people like Answers in Genesis, and they'll tell you, no, 6,000 years, 6,004 years to the day. You know, Adam and Eve, real people, dinosaurs, all existed and died within a few hundred, that's the thing. And then all the way at the other end, you've got Biologos, if you've ever heard of them, and they are sold out full evolutionists, and they see evolution as, hey, um, Francis Collins, who founded that, said, hey, who's the better God? The bot, you know, there's a God here who just, creates the universe, out it unfolds, and out life unfolds from it, all perfectly evolved. I think probably you can make an argument for both. And where I've landed, and frankly, there's, there's diversity of opinion within my own family <laughs> about this. But ultimately, then that question tacks us back to what is it about? You see, it's, it's about the gospel first. And so I tend to say, yeah, okay, maybe I might say something like, well, okay, in Hebrew, the name Adam is Adam, which is the word for human, and the name Eve is the Hebrew word for life. And so in one sense, they're meant to be sort of symbolic people. But then on the other hand, you know, they're treated as actual people in the narrative, and, you know, so maybe there's that. What about Cain's wife? Ooh, that's weird, isn't it? But all that aside... Why, why do you believe what you believe is the first question. So for me, those kinds of things can be distractions. So when people throw those at me, I say, well, I'll say something kind of similar to what I've said to you now, but I did attack it back and say, well, look, that's, that's nice, but lots of Christians talk about that. But ultimately, there's two things. First one is, what's it trying to tell us about who we are as humans and what our relationship to God is? And that doesn't change irrespective of what you think about dinosaurs. You see, what humans are and what we've done, and what God is doing for us, and what comes out of that story doesn't actually change whether you think the world has been here for 4.6 billion years or not. You see, so that story is unchanged, and that's what that book is focused on, number one. Uh, and number two, the things, the reasons I believe, and I'm a Christian, is because I know that God is real. I know that Jesus lived, he taught, he died, and he resurrected. And I've seen evidence for that, and I've felt it in my life. And that's it. That's what I stand on. And there's other bits of the Bible when I think, okay, I think I know what this says. I think I understand what that says. I'm not quite sure how this fits in, but I'm happy with that. I don't have to actually know the absolute answer to that. I don't have to have an absolute position on it other than I trust that that story is God's teaching for us now. So what God wants us to understand from that is who we are as humans. What kind of people are we? We're creatures of this earth. We're made of the stuff of the earth. You see, and God breathes life into it. Actually, that's an interesting metaphor for humans. Um, think about this. I could take, you know, me and just unpick me or you atom by atom <laughs> until eventually there's a fine pile of dust, none of which has ever been alive, but all of which has been you, right? It's quite an arresting notion, isn't it? And so that's the miracle of life, isn't it? And isn't that exactly what the Genesis narrative tells us we are? So in one sense, it's telling us a fundamental truth and I think that's what we take away from it. I tend to just go, I don't know, it's fine. Because lots of people are arguing about it. Lots of people are putting effort into saying, well, scientific dating doesn't work, and yes, it does. And, uh, <laughs> and I think it's a um, little bit of a distraction because what it's not doing is focusing on who we ought to be. It's not telling us what humans ought to be. It's not telling us what God's redemptive story is. It's not telling us what the gospel's about. So I tend to see these kinds of things as potential distractions. Uh, from the real issue. So they're interesting, but if I'm speaking to someone who's not a Christian, I, I try and bring it back. I'll say some things to say, look, either way, doesn't really matter. What matters is this. 
um, are you in or not? <laughs> is that helpful? I'm not sure that's the answer you were looking for, but is that helpful? All right. Thanks, Phil. Just on that as well, uh, something I've found helpful is um, <clears throat> using the right tools for the job. So you can't polish a plate with a saw. It's just the wrong tool, right? It's not going to go very well. So applying science to Genesis is the wrong tool for the job. So Genesis is not a scientific book. It's, uh, you know, it, you could argue, it's obviously theological. It's designed to show us the order of God in creation. And uh, you can apply that Adam and Eve is a, an accurate story of creation, that they were true people and all of that, or you could think something else. Um, but to sort of put an account of how the world came into existence in the timeline of Genesis and everything like that, Genesis is not a scientific account of creation, but it does show the order with which God has brought things into being. And so it's making sure we're using the right tools for the job. And so I, you might say something else on that, but I actually found that quite a helpful way to sort of think about Genesis. Yeah, I think, did everyone hear that? Just the, the power of testimony. So, you know, our story, uh, people probably won't deny it. They might say, you know, well, how lovely for you, or, or something quite patronizing like that. But, um, but it actually, with a testimony, you're putting something in front of them, which uh, they have to do something with. And actually, that's a great, yeah, thank can I, you. Can I say two things to what she, I think that's good. Testimonies are important. The first thing is, when I was an atheist and someone would come to me with a testimony, my assumption would just be, well, that's, that's interesting. Spontaneous remission, whatever, you know. It didn't register with me because my universe didn't include a God, you see. However, it, you need to put things in front of people. And so sometimes, I think part of the reason my mind went to Genesis is because Andy went to church and I had Christian friends badgering me. And even though they didn't convince me intellectually, it just brought it to my mind. And it just meant that I was ready. I always say that when you have people on a journey of faith, it's not like a, um, a game of pool. It's like a, it's like a golf game. And you don't know whether you're the driver or you're the, the one that's putting. or you don't, you don't know which swing you are on the golf course. You see what I mean? You don't know. You might just be the very first thing that sets that person off, and it may look like nothing, and yet, all of a sudden, it turns into something else. So people aren't strictly logical machines, and so I think testimonies are valuable, even in this kind of somewhat dry philosophical arena, because it just helps people to think to themselves, oh, I should probably, maybe I should think about this. And so you're right, not just because of the power of testimony, but even if somebody's a bit, mm, whatever with you, you don't know what's happening back there, because that's certainly been my experience. It's the spirit, that's right, and it's also us reflecting God's will, being the people of God, looking out for one another, because that's what we should be as well. God wants us to reflect his will and his love in the world, so that's absolutely right. Thanks, Will. Um, just, do you have um, a particular way that you approach when people say, um, I, 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 you know, how can a God who is good do X, whatever X happens to be, which is the old chestnut, um, do you have a particular way that you approach that or that you seek to address it? 
Yeah, I was waiting for this question. Why does bad stuff happen, Will? Bad stuff happens. I don't get it. So I've grappled with this. Um, a couple of things. So the first thing is, think about the hidden premises. Yeah, what's, what's behind the question? There's a kind of assumption, isn't there, about God, and an assumption about what we deserve, and an assumption about how the world ought to be. Uh, and I'm not sure I agree with them. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I told Dory when she was 10. And she, I went up to take her to bed, and as kids often do, they think of theological questions because they know it'll get me going, <laughs> and then they don't have to go to sleep. <laughs> but this time, I think she was more sincere, and she said, Papa, why does, yeah, I know God loves us, so why does bad stuff happen then? Right, with a kind of honesty, which is really arresting when it comes from a kid. And um, I thought about it, and I said, well, think about this. Would, would the world be awesome if no one could ever get hurt, ever, no matter what? Would the world be better? And she kind of went, because uh, she knows when I'm about to snare her. <laughs> and so she went, uh, and I said, I don't think it would be that good. I'll tell you why. I don't think it would matter if you loved anyone, would it? So it wouldn't matter if no one could ever get hurt. It just wouldn't matter, would it? It wouldn't matter if you went around hating everyone, loving anyone. It wouldn't matter if you chose well or chose badly. It just wouldn't matter. Nothing would matter. In fact, would we even be humans? She was like, okay, that was a bit intense, you know, for a 10-year-old. But that's the idea. I said it a little bit more gently. But that's usually how I look at it. I think a lot of the assumption behind that question is that, well, God put us here. It's not our fault we're here. Why is this bad stuff happening to me? Ah. And again, back to the theological. Is that the story the Bible tells us about who we are? It isn't, is it? The Bible tells us that actually we <laughs> don't want to do stuff God's way. We want to do stuff our way. And that we're living in the consequence of that. And that's both a story about what happened at the beginning with Adam and Eve, whatever, whatever that means, symbolically or personally. But actually, we relive that choice through our lives, every generation, you see. And so we're not in a situation where we're these kind of innocents who just happened into this world, number one. And so God doesn't owe us a perfect existence, I think, was the first thing. But the second thing, I think, I don't think the structure of the world is unfair as people think. Because I think the things that make human life valuable, the things that make love possible, the things that give meaning to everything that we do, are predicated on a world which is a level playing field, which is reliable, where things can be good and bad, and that allow you moral agency and the power to do good or to do what's bad. And it's only in a world like that that you can have real love, that you can have real connection, that you can have real relationships. And I think any world that you think of or conceive of that has those qualities ends up looking an awful, like, an awful lot like the actual world. And so that's usually how I take it, that the world is not structured in as unfair a way as perhaps you think. And I think the playground world that people think they want is not as awesome as they think it is. Um, and really, again, behind that question might be something else as well. So again, it depends, because sometimes, you know, someone's grandmother might have died, so that might not be the best response. So that's the other thing I kind of play it. But gently, I might introduce that idea that the world may not be as unfair as it seems if you really think about why life is valuable. Is that helpful? As, and and I, mean, we, I could go a lot longer on this question. There's lots and lots of arguments about, you know, why does God allow evil? Use the throw the lemma. 
Mackey's argument, all this stuff. But actually, it boils down to, I think, that hidden premise. God owes me. You see? It's unfair. And I think you've got to ask yourself, is it unfair? Number one. Is it life unfair as it is? You see? I've heard people say, oh, well, what about these parasites boring into the eye of little girls in Africa? That's horrible. Why does God allow it? And I'm thinking, well, hang on. In West Sussex here, how many two-year-old girls do you know with parasites in their eye? So is that an argument about how God has structured the world, or is it about how we've chosen to run the world? Right? Who's he pointing the finger at? You see? And so often, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I try not to be heartless. But basically, I try to think about, look, what makes life valuable is the fact the world is how it is. If you take that away, we're no longer humans anymore. You see? And that's just how it is. And now you've got to grapple with it. You see? And if you want to get really nerdy, you could say, well, you've got the problem of why anything's good. <laughs> why is anything good anyway? Where does all this idea that this is evil come from? Why do you believe that? That's just the way the world is, isn't it? Why do you think it's bad? Why is it unfair? I had a friend I was hanging out with at the weekend, and he said, yeah, well, this, all this stuff that's happened with the British Empire is really bad. And I was like, well, yeah, you should have met the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks. Flip. Everyone. I said, actually, the miracle is that anyone thinks it's wrong at all. Why is it wrong? That is just what people do. Why is it wrong? You see? So I think all these things point back, and it all depends on the person, on the situation you're in, how you might choose to respond. But yeah, with, with the suffering piece, I tend to say, well, it is bad. So, you know, sorry, I, I'm now thinking I might have been a bit heartless. So suffering is horrible, actually. My grandmother served as a missionary for 42 years. Um, she got Alzheimer's towards the end of her life and uh, couldn't remember me. And uh, it was stressful for my grandfather. It was very tough. Um, so yeah, it can be tough, can't it? And it's not a dry philosophical subject, you see. But ultimately, it's because, you see, <laughs> the universe is how it is that I love her, that I can care for her, that it matters to me that she suffered, you see. And that's in a way distinctive of the Christian faith. So your Epicurean, your Buddha says, well, we don't get too close, so that way you won't get hurt. And there's a point at which the Christian says, I'll do it anyway, even if it hurts, even if I'm worse off than I was before because love is more important. That's the thing that matters most, you see. It's just a way of navigating the world as it is to better glorify God and to better show his love, you see. And I can't think of a better world in which to do that. Is that helpful? And I think on it as well is that the world as it is today is not what God produced. And so that answers a lot of the questions around suffering. The doctrine of the fall is really important in answering the question of suffering in the world today. Because, um, yeah, he didn't make it happen, we did. The bad stuff. Yeah, so um, We've probably got a couple more minutes if anyone else has got question one more was that a question over there no okay, okay. Thank you. um yes i have a question um where i used to work um we used to have a frequent um discussion about uh, and brought it up at the front earlier on evolution 
Uh, I'm particularly talking about human evolution, where somebody would believe, you know, from apes to, to humans, you know. And it's um, a very, very difficult to persuade somebody of their standpoint when, the, when they've got particular views on that. Um, yeah, good question. Evolution is a hot topic, especially in the US, actually, where I'm from. People get real hung up on evolution. Um, and depending on, again, the, the philosophical turns theological, so it starts to intertwine with how you read Genesis. It starts to intertwine with what you think the fall means, and it can get a bit messy. So I think, um, well, thing number one, um, evolutionary theory, an interesting conference happened a few years ago in London where all the evolutionary biologists got together and said, um, we have a slight issue in that natural selection or random mutation doesn't actually account for the level of a speciation that we see. Did that sound like English to y'all? Yeah, okay, some, some, <laughs> yeah. So those two factors alone shouldn't give us, won't give us all the animal types that we see. There's something else going on. Um, hmm, interesting. Uh, another thing I noticed is a few years ago, I heard a guy who said that he thought he figured out what this missing factor was. Uh, and he said, oh, you know, I'm an atheist. It's a natural solution. And I listened to this guy debating, and he said, oh, um, well, what it is, is it's kind of a new force of nature. And it just means that whenever the conditions are right, life just arises. And I listened to this guy, and I thought, what? <laughs> That's just, you might as well replace force of nature with divine will, and you're back to, you know, you're back to Leibniz, you know, whatever. And so I think, in terms of the thinking, I think that there might be a bit less certainty in that than people say there is. But also, part of the reason I like the fine-tuning is it kind of skips around that evolutionary model. So in a way, for me, the bigger question is at the fundamental level of the universe. Why is it structured the way it is? And in a way, for evolution, if that's what happened, to happen at all, that requires very, very, very specific conditions. Actually, a couple of evolutionary biologists a few years ago wrote a book where they worked out the likelihood of us moving on the evolutionary model from single-cell organisms to multi-cell organisms to creatures. And they worked out that it's so unlikely that probably it only happened once in the whole universe, and that's here. That's what they concluded. And one of them became a theist as a result. So I don't know what the answer is. I'd say, I usually, if, if people ask me that sort of thing, I might say more or less what I've said to you. I'd point out a couple of little things, say, well, you know, maybe it's not so sure as you think. And then I might point out that, well, actually, I'm not so fixed on interpreting science via the Bible anyway. And then I might then say, actually, either way you look at it, I can have it point to God. So either way, if evolution is true, well, actually, that's just a product of the fact that the universe is fine-tuned and allows evolution in the first place, and that points to God. And if it's not true and the Bible's true, that points to God, because, you see, God always has a witness in the world. And so then we're back to square one, which is God exists, and what are you going to do about it? So I tend to skirt around it. I don't take to take a strong position on evolution because... A, I don't think it's a fundamental <laughs> issue for my faith, and B, it doesn't change what I think the Bible's asking me to do or be in the world, and I just, I, I'm not as fixed on it. I know some people are. I know some people are. Some people think, no, well, hang on, Adam and Eve. Uh, there's an interesting chap called uh, Josh Swamidas. He's done some research recently highlighting that actually you could 
trace all of modern genetic evolution to a single human pair five, 6,000 years ago, and that's genetically possible. So there are people out there doing work in this. But in terms of me and how I tend to share the faith, I, I don't tend to worry too much. And if people bring it up, I'll bring up some other side issues. And I think usually what they're saying is, look, I think, yeah, what's the statement behind your statement? They're saying, well, look, science says you're wrong, is what they're saying, isn't it? They're saying, oh, evolution, right? That's not in the Bible, is it? So science says you're wrong. What are you going to say about that? So in a way, part of my response is to say, well, actually, science kind of says I'm right, too. <laughs> look at this, look at this, and look at this. Uh, and maybe you think this means we're wrong, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe evolution doesn't disprove, because actually, what's it disproving? The Bible's not really about that. And then take them back away from that. I think this is one of those things, when we talk to people about the faith, what are we focusing on? Are we focusing on the key issues, which is God is real, Jesus lived, died and resurrected, here's the gospel. Or are we getting ourselves pulled away into these kind of side issues which aren't central uh, to what we need to share? And so this is why one of the points I made is to kind of bring it back to the gospel because ultimately that's what it's about. And ultimately that's what's going to transform people. And ultimately that's what's going to redeem us all. And so you've got to bring it back to that and not get... So it's okay to be informed. Yeah, and it's okay to kind of use it to kind of go back. But it kind of links back to those other questions or those other points I made about thinking about what's behind a statement and making it about the gospel again. Is that helpful? That's okay. I think that's another point I made is don't worry about convincing everyone. That's all right. No, I know, but the point is you mustn't, well, you can, you can be annoyed about it, but don't judge yourself on it, I guess. You'd have to like it, but, you know, it's not on you if somebody is just going to be like, no, I'm not having it, I'm not interested, I'm not listening. That's not your fault. Sometimes people are like that, and, and you don't know how things might turn out later, but I know it's frustrating sometimes when people just don't want to know, and we just have to try and, and, and be loving and live with that. This is this is where the, the we should pray for your friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, that's the secret weapon, isn't it? it? It's the prayer that you know underpins. It's over to the Lord when it's that situation. So. Maybe there's an Irish, yeah, preacher speaking to his heart right now. <laughs> you never know. Give me. Oh, well, okay. Let's do the final question then. Um, I was I was gonna ask on the problem of evil, but just a few like comment or uh, questions on your responses. Where does like the idea of darker principalities and like the enemy fall into understanding of evil in the world mm -hmm. and? Um, does so suffering has to be here for us to have good does that mean that god then chose to he he actively chose to allow the suffering route because he thought that was better and then another one is so in the sorry just a little bit is in the dark and, and seemingly ends that way on this earth just so, that 
Someone's been taking theology classes. <laughs> okay. I was just to say, it's quite a good advert for the sort of year at Chank. Yeah. Um, Dylan's just come off it, and he's got all these big questions. Yeah. And, um, okay. Did God mean us to suffer? No, I don't think he did. God meant us to be free and meant us to love him freely. Um, does that entail the possibility of things going wrong? Yeah, probably does. God is all-knowing we're told, right? So that means God knew that that was a live possibility. Now Dylan's going to go, well, hang on, if God knew, does that mean he willed it? Well, you know, it depends on how philosophical you want to get. The point is, I think God wanted us to be free. He wanted us to exist. Uh, sorry, love to exist. He wanted us to live in a world that had meaning to it, that had real lives. And that entails a type of existence that has to be a certain way. And things can go wrong in it. And that's the story of the Bible. They do go wrong, you see. And that's just what's going on. Principalities and powers, that's Genesis 6. There was some kind of rebellion. That's the story there. You know, something, people that, well, people, beings that weren't on board. They're anti-creation. The snake in the garden, that's an interesting character. The word crafty there is the same word that's used like in the Proverbs and things like that. It's not necessarily a negative word. It just means it kind of, you know, knows what's going on, right? And wants to undo what God is building. That's the idea. And I, when I look at the world, I do see that. I see this kind of, I don't know if anyone's read any Hannah Arendt, um, Origins of Totalitarianism. No? Okay. <laughs> Anyway, she's a Jewish philosopher. She wrote a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, very controversial, and she coined that phrase, the banality of evil. And the thing that struck her about Eichmann is that he was so unexceptional, uninspiring, unoriginal, and not remarkably intelligent individual, and yet was a key cog in a horrible, horrible reality. And it was precisely his ineptitude, his banality that made it so terrible that you don't even have the dignity of having some evil genius behind it. It's just some, some fool. And that's when I think sometimes when you see things coalescing in a way, and you think, this is more than the sum of the parts. Yeah? You get that sense sometimes? I think that's when you start to get a glimpse of what we're up against. And I think that's, again, what's going on. Um, so, hang on. Spiritual evil. What did you ask? You asked, did God... Yeah, so... This is where it can be a bit, again, this is where I'm kind of going back to the gospel. So kind of like the danger when you get philosophical is that you start to make assumptions about God. You start to study things like God's divine aseity and God's all-knowingness and God's this and God's that. And we say things like, oh, God's omniscient, as if we have any conception of what that means. Do you have any conception of what it means to be omniscient? I don't. I have no idea what that means. What does it even mean? Do you know what it means to be all-powerful? Do we have even the tiniest conception of what that means when you think about it? Think about what we actually know, people. Do we know it? We have no idea what we're talking about. So the danger of philosophy, and I love philosophy, I love it, it's great, but the danger is that we think by saying words that we understand the things that we're saying. <laughs> and so I think when philosophers say things like, well, if God's all this and God's all that, then this has to happen, I ask myself, do they actually know what that word means? Really, no. And like, there's a sense in which, in the West, we don't help ourselves with how we use words. We say words like, no, we mean up here. We mean, oh, do I understand? You see, do I understand that there could be a God? Do I understand this? 
Whereas in the Bible, the word know in Jewish culture is kind of a, when you know someone, it's a physical, it's a lived thing, you know. It's the difference between I've read how to fix a car and I've fixed a car for 20 years. Yeah? So if you've read about fixing a car, a first century Jew would say you don't really know how to fix a car. Probably we'd say the same. You know how to fix a car when you've done it. You see what I mean? So there's a kind of knowing. So I think, I think just there's caution in that. So I've read a lot of that stuff. I've read a lot about, well, hang on, if God's all-knowing and all-powerful, how is God not somehow responsible for what everything is happening? Maybe, don't know. But then we have the cross, and there is God taking responsibility for our evil. You see? Thank you for joining us on The Roots Podcast. To connect with our community and to find other resources, visit chanctonbury.org.uk.